Everybody stand back up. If you uh, have no elders at your church, now let me be careful and define this. I mean no pastors. Using elder and pastor interchangeably. Whether or not they are paid. If you have no elders at your church. So Mark, I got to understand, I'm at a Southern Baptist church. I'm the only pastor. We're small. There's nobody else on staff. We don't have any lay elders. I mean, I'm, I'm it. So do, do we have elders? Yes, you have one elder. Okay, so please understand. I'm using it interchangeably. So, okay, Mark, we have five elders on staff. They're all called pastors. We don't have any lay elders. Okay, you have a plurality of elders. Okay, so just any questions about the question before we go on with this? So we're all clear. Okay, if you have no elders at your church, please be seated. No, okay, brother in the back, you sat down. What's your name? All right, don't sit down yet then. All right, any, any, anyone else? Anyone else dared to sit down? All right, if you have only one elder or pastor at your church, please be seated. Almost no one sat down, like 10 people, five people maybe. Okay, if you have two elders or pastors or fewer, please be seated. Only two. Three. You guys don't have to all look at me. You can look around. I mean, that's part of the point so we can see what's going on here. Four. Five. Six. Seven. Eight. Nam had to count and think, oh, is it? Oh, no, no, no. Nine. Ten. Rocky, is that your church? Ten. So that means 10 pastors on staff. 11. 12. Oh, you guys are at Grace. <laughs> and you're at Capitol Hill. All right. So we have what, 26, 28, 24, and you guys have like 40? 40? Great. Okay, great. Please be seated. All right. All right. If your church has lay elders, that is pastors or elders who are not in the pay of the church, they have other full-time jobs, please stand. Just look around. So again, that's most of you. All right, please be seated. So this is really a kind of continuation of the talk PJ was just giving, only I'm trying to think specifically about uh, what we do to raise up leaders. What kind of discipling uh, have I found useful in this? 
And let me just say as an announcement to anybody who's going to be at the Southern Baptist Convention this next week at the Anaheim Convention Center, at 9 o'clock at night in the California Ballroom, Jonathan Lehman and I will be leading out at 9 marks at 9 on Monday night and Tuesday night. And the admission price is free. So, and you can come if you're a guest. Even if you're a Methodist, you are welcome to be there. Anybody is welcome to come. Uh, the first one on Monday night, we're going to talk about what's wrong with us. And on Tuesday night, we're going to talk about why do we need a denomination. And we're local church pastors. That's what we're thinking about. Why do we need a denomination? You're welcome to come to either one. Nine o'clock over there in Anaheim. Um, one thing that I have found useful to consider in thinking about the nature of pastoral ministry and its essentially outgoing nature is the importance uh, of the practice of pastoral visitation. So a lot of you will be aware of Richard Baxter and his famous model of visiting in Kidderminster uh, in the 1640s and 50s in England. Uh, but it's not just Baxter. I mean, if you use other classic books by Charles Bridges or David Dixon the Elder in his work, you'll find this idea of pastoral work uh, specifically having to do with the shepherds getting to know the individual members of the church and how they are doing spiritually. There are modern equivalents of this, or, or modern, not exactly equivalents, but similar things in Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism, great classic from the 1960s, by our tall, friendly Methodist author, uh, who uh, overreads the Gospels, but in an edifying way, to see Jesus as a model, uh, expounder, uh, salesman almost. And while I do think, as I say in my description there, that master plan of evangelism is reading a little bit too much into the text, I do think he's basically right in what he's saying about Jesus working with a small group of people for a long time in order to do the largest long-term work. That's a little bit against some of our instincts. So if you've never read Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism, it's very short. It's worth a read. If you want something more on that, it's really reproducing and summarizing uh, a century earlier classic work from Scotland, A.B. Bruce, The Training of the Twelve, which uh, it, you would find interesting to read if, if you liked uh, Coleman. A more modern example of similar stuff but that goes on beyond evangelism into the whole life of the church is Tony Payne and uh, Carl Marshall's uh, Trellis and Vine. Now, these are two Sydney Anglicans. Uh, they're strong evangelicals and they see that the work of the church must be done not by the staff but by the church. Well friends there's something in that instinct that is not only profoundly biblical but is also I think the key to unlocking the natural kind of growth I think the Lord intends there to be in our churches. I call it natural, I mean supernatural. Basically, if you imagine every church in Los Angeles being represented by either a red dot or a green dot, a red dot if they are a net importer of preaching and teaching, a green dot if they are a net exporter of preaching and teaching. So that is, you have more preachers in your church than you need and you kind of can send them out to other churches to help out. Red dot being like, when your pastor is not preaching, you need to bring somebody in to preach. Because you, 
yeah, you, you can't, for whatever reason, sustain yourself. Uh, I think most churches are probably red dot churches. Uh, I think sometimes that's okay. Very new work uh, in an unusual, difficult period. But if your church exists for a long time as a red dot church, I'm going to guess usually something's wrong there. I think we normally want our churches to be green dot. That is net exporters of preaching and teaching. I, in fact, I think that's how Christianity got here from Palestine. I think the only way the Great Commission has succeeded as it has, has been there being these green dot churches that have exported more preaching uh, than they themselves need. I think that's what we as a, as a group of Christians looking around America today, that's in the world, that's what we need to think of and pray for. And what I'm trying to do is in our own church right now, thinking about our local church and trying to help you as a pastor of your local church think about what it means for us to have that basic kind of health going on in a way that will encourage growth. Let me say something I said at a pastoral meeting last month. If, um, if you think of discipling, that is helping somebody else grow in Christ, evangelizing, uh, raising up leaders, church planting, and missions, if you think of those as five entirely distinct things, then I think you've not understood them very well. So there's some churches that would be really good at like missions. We are, we are the missions church. But there's nothing going on in evangelism there locally. You know, or if you think, hey, this church is really good at discipling, but they don't really do church planting. Ah, okay, some, there's something broken that naturally should not be broken. Because I think church planting can be cool, but if you're not seeing churches, or elders raised up in your own local church, then I'm not sure what you're doing with your church when you're church planting, just because that's what everybody says you're supposed to do these days. You're taking a church that doesn't seem to be very vital, and you're breaking it up just because that seems to be right these days. I would discourage your brothers from doing that. I would encourage you more to try to think about, is there some way we can see that kind of green dot health in our church where we begin to see ourselves more as naturally exporters, and by naturally in this case I mean supernaturally, exporters of the gospel and spiritual life, in which case we're going to see our church marked by discipling, uh, members helping each other grow spiritually, uh, where you know, and that's the germ of it all, where, where you know that if I claim to follow Jesus, I need to be helping other people follow Jesus. That's like the basic thing. That's basic to all these five matters. If, if you think you can follow Jesus without helping somebody else follow Jesus, I just want to know what you mean by saying you're following Jesus. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm just saying I would, you're going to have to help me understand then what it means that you're following Jesus if you found a way to do that without helping other people follow Jesus. All right, when that idea of what it means to follow Jesus, be a Christian, is standard issue in your church, when that is the water every member of your church drinks every Lord's Day, you're going to find a natural culture of discipling beginning to percolate in your church, where people are trying to help each other grow spiritually, where there are these deliberate spiritual conversations. And I'll tell you what else begins to happen. You're going to find your members evangelizing. 
there are going to be people who, once they've learned how to have these conversations with each other, they're now ready to do this slightly more difficult thing, usually for most people, of talking to non-Christians about the gospel because they realize that they are to care, and they do care. And in fact, what you're going to find is then more elders growing up in your church because they're involved in teaching the word to each other. And what you're going to find at some point is you have more elders than you need, and you're going to start planting other churches around you. And furthermore, you're going to find, hey, you know what? We, we don't have to just do that here. We can do it in Tijuana and Costa Rica, and we can do it over in Japan, and we can do it, in fact, wherever a church is needed. So you see how if you get that germ of discipling going, it runs through everything. Any quick questions on that? I want to make sure we're all at least in the same neighborhood before I go on and build on that. Any brief question of public interest on that yep name church uh-huh no idea brother asked how long does it take for this culture to get going I think it varies yeah pray God bless you keep going anything else yep name again that's fine then you just work on that specifically with them yeah Caleb just says hey when you start to have surplus pastors but they're not really ready to lead a church yet what do you do you get them to serve as elders that's how they're going to get ready to lead a church make sure you're creating teaching opportunities that's some of the stuff I'm going to talk about right now good question that's going to lead me into the rest of it let's go okay so basically the, the spirit behind this whole concern is that we should be about as pastors the glory of God. Look over at 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 15. Paul says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Uh, sometimes people think because uh, we at Nine Marks warn against a wrong kind of speed and rapidity that we're not really in favor of growth or multiplication. Oh, uh, that's not true at all. Uh, I exult in hearing of gospel spread. Uh, I, I loved uh, recently thinking about Second Thessalonians three one where Paul asked the brothers to pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Uh, Paul is excited to hear the gospel speeding ahead. And here he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.15, so that as grace extends to more and more people, see, he likes the idea of more and more people. Paul is not about, you know, a tiny group and no more. No, as the grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. Because he sees thanksgiving will increase. And look at what that does. To the glory of God. So he wants God glorified. He wants to see more people in Phoenix. And more people in Monterey. Uh, coming to Christ. He, he wants to see more people coming to be forgiven of their sins. Through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. He wants to see churches being established. Well one implication that has for those of us who serve as pastors. The main pastor. The main teaching elder in a church 
is we need to be thinking about gospel work in our area. So who's here from Phoenix? Brother, your name again? Lucas. Lucas, if Josh is just thinking about Trinity Bible, he is the wrong pastor for Trinity Bible. Uh, Dom, if you're just thinking about Grace Church Monterey, you're the wrong pastor for Grace Church Monterey. And I don't mean you have to be concerned about missions in Bhutan, though you should, or, you know, a good thing going on in L.A. No, I mean specifically in Monterey. I mean, caring about people who could drive to your church and be a part of your church, but they are establishing another church. If that does not make you happy, now in specifics it may be a bad reason, there may be sin behind it, but of it done healthily, if that doesn't make you happy, then there's a problem. And too many of us have been like the man who had been praying for revival for years, and then it breaks out, but in the guy... Guy's church across town. And he, you know, then you have to ask, well, has he really been praying for revival or is it just he wanted his church to grow? Kind of like support your team. Brothers, we have to be concerned for gospel growth, in your case here, in the L.A. area. Uh, you should rejoice in the thought of all these other faithful witnesses around you. You should realize these sister congregations are congregations that you want to teach your congregation to know of and value. So one of the great glories of a meeting like this is hopefully you've been able to meet a brother who is closer to you than you may have realized was there. Maybe he's two, two towns or territories or whatever you call them over. And you now know that he's there and you can start praying for him. You can have your church by name pray for their church. You can, you can care for them when... When you find out that their treasure embezzled money, that can be part of the pain that you feel, part of the burden that you help them bear as you pray for them. You can have a wider concern that you teach your congregation to have. And if you don't have that, I don't think you should be a pastor of a church. No one should go into the pastorate who's not more concerned about gospel growth in their area than they are simply about the numerical growth of their own congregation. I try to support that in our church in all kinds of ways. We have former staff and interns uh, right here in the back of our membership directory. So I always say my two most important books that I always have with me, my Bible and my church membership directory. And uh, my church membership directory has the members of the church in there. Try to pray through that regularly. Uh, but also, we have special sections in the back, and one of them is for former staff and interns. So, uh, so Jason Rivette, you want to stand up for a second? Jason's pastor over at First Baptist Hacienda Heights. Jason, he was on our staff for a time. So we're going to be praying for Jason for a long time. We pray for Jason regularly. Uh, and we, we do this regularly with those who are pastors that we've sent out, uh, or other missionaries that we continue to support, or seminarians that we are supporting. Uh, so what I want to think about in the remainder of this session before we have a final Q&A time is Mark's uh, practices of identifying, growing, and training elders. Some of these are larger, some of them are smaller. This is basically what I do once I think I've found the raw material, what I try to do to um, cultivate that. And understand from some of the very verses that 
uh, PJ was just reading to us, that we as pastors have a particular responsibility to understand this and to teach people about this. So number one, qualifications. We just looked at them uh, from Titus. You know, that's there in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, the background is, seems to be Exodus 18, uh, you know, Jethro's uh, counsel to Moses. Um, I think it's fine to take those biblical lists and supplement them. Uh, I will just say, as far as when I'm looking for elders at our church, I do look at more than just that biblical list. I do not look at less. I think we're required to look at what's in those biblical lists. But it's fine for you to do things like noting natural gifts of leadership. Uh, that's not anti-biblical uh, for you to notice that. Um, we, as we look around, we shouldn't be put off by a misuse of, or misunderstanding of James 2.1. You know, do not show favoritism or do not show partiality. Uh, sometimes people will think if you focus on trying to raise up leaders, then you are showing partiality, you're showing favoritism, and you shouldn't do that. Well, I would just respond to that. James's warning is against showing favoritism to those who are wealthy, uh, presumably for some kind of benefit for yourself. Uh, and that is reprehensible and very much the opposite of the Christian gospel. But the, the idea that a pastor will give special attention to raising up other pastors is good, not bad. And that will benefit the church as a whole and other churches that are to come. So it is a good thing for you to encourage your pastor to spend time doing things like that. So one of the qualifications that sometimes people overlook that I think we need to notice is in 1 Timothy 3.1, where Paul tells Timothy uh, that it is good to desire this uh, noble office uh, of elder. It's a noble thing to desire this work. Uh, I think desire is normally a required qualification. For serving as an elder or pastor. So basically as I look around in the congregation. I begin right there. First thing with qualifications. Number two. Second thing. Look. You have to look. Uh, it begins with this. Look for who God is raising up around you. Uh, that's exactly what Jethro was telling Moses there in Exodus 18. He's telling Moses to look around. See who's like this. Uh, we're being in one sense opportunistic. Uh, we have a deep confidence that God intends to do this, that God is in this work, and we're simply trying to notice, uh, you know, Paul in Ephesians calls pastors and teachers gifts of Christ to his church. We don't finally create elders, uh, you know, th that's the Lord's work. We recognize what it is the Lord is doing, and we try to do things to help facilitate that work. What that means very practically is you need to hang around your congregation. Do not be the guy whose service finishes at 12.05 and by 12.20 you are on the golf course with four friends, you know, or even much more likely just at home. Uh, do try to hang around the congregation. Doesn't mean you have to be the last one there, but it's not bad if you are. Uh, I was the last one there for a while at my church. And then he got too big and too young and I got too old. But I mean, I, I'm still, I don't, I don't leave immediately. You know, I'm there. I am standing at the door at the back longer than anyone is waiting to talk to me. Let me just put it like that. So there's an initial rush and I'll have 70 people walk past me with quick comments in the first 10 minutes when a service is done. But then there's going to be about 20 minutes where I'm standing there and I talk to a total of 11 people and they're not there all at once. Because different people kind of come talking to you. 
when they just look over and see the preacher standing there by himself, they, well, they wander over and they go say something to you. You know, and sometimes they say good things and sometimes they say not good things. But it, you're getting to know the congregation. You know, you just have different kind of conversations if you'll just hang around and wait and make yourself available. It's a simple thing, but it's part of this looking. I think even praying through the membership directory is, is helpful. It brings people to mind. You know, as I'm praying for them, I'm just regularly brought to mind uh, every member of our church over the course of a month. So that's all number, number two. Look, number three, trust. I think you will be helped to see more elders raised up around you if you will love people, particularly in the sense of being willing to believe the best about them. Sometimes pastors take their role as watchmen as shepherd trying to, you know, bonk wolves on the nose with their crook, to justify a kind of suspicious outlook on life. And they'll see that that somehow makes them grizzled and sanctified. I just beg to differ. I think it would be better for you to be taken advantage of too much uh, than be the grizzly one who, who keeps good people out. Uh, I think you want to be the one who always believes the best. Now at some point, that belief may show itself not to be true, and that's fine, then you need to be the leader in being realistic about that. But you at least start with believing the best. You want to advance trust like credit. You want to, you want to let them spend it. I think a lot of leaders with the best of motives are too conservative. Uh, they wait until people prove themselves, and then they'll give them something to do. Well, brothers, I would just say create lots of small events at which people can prove themselves. Uh, give. So, so we have core seminars on Sunday mornings. Those are our, our equipped classes. They're our Sunday school classes. They, they exist from 9.30 to 10.30 or 10.25 on Sunday mornings. They're topical usually. Well, we do have an Old Testament and New Testament track, but other than that, they're topical. It's like a Christian book, only it's a, a taught form. And we work on the manuscripts. The manuscripts are given the teachers. So let's say if Jonathan's teaching one, Jonathan won't write the class. Jonathan will be one of the teachers. Let's say Jonathan and Caleb are the teachers for this Old Testament overview series. Well, all the manuscripts are written. But they just know that they're responsible to be there every Sunday for the next 26 Sundays. Or if one of them's not there, the other one knows they're not going to be there. One of them is going to be there to cover it. And they divide up between themselves these 26 manuscripts. And they will cover it going through the Old Testament. They can make edits and improvements. They just need to turn those into us. In many ways, we're there just to work on those manuscripts. But the other thing we're doing is we're creating an opportunity for them to get practice teaching. So honestly, if there are three people in the class or 30, I don't really care very much. You know, we don't tell members they need to be there. They're welcome to come. But we want the, the men there teaching the Bible. Because we're trying to help identify elders and raise them up. And sometimes you just sort of activate that gene by putting that person in that situation where they need to do that. So we have probably 70 to 80 men every year involved in teaching core seminars. That's 70 or 80 people getting ready to publicly teach God's word. And that's not counting the small group leaders in our church, men and women, who are teaching men's groups or women's groups. That's just the core seminar teaching uh, going on on Sunday mornings. Create things like that. That would be uh, avenues for you to have trust built in people. It's number three, trust. Number four, personal time. 
Well, I've already sort of hinted toward this. You want to give time personally to people. Uh, I think here it is legitimate for us to look at the example of Jesus. You open up to Mark's gospel. You look at chapter 3. The, the famous bit there in chapter 3 about the 12. You read in Mark 3 verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. So you see that Jesus was deliberate in trying to have personal time with these disciples. And we see him then for years pouring into them. So you need to be available, which means don't build walls around yourself. So some of us come with automatic walls. I'm tall. I have a PhD from Cambridge. I am articulate. I'm fast on my feet. I'm not naturally very empathetic. I'm good at sarcasm. There are people who don't like to talk to me. That isn't good. That's a bad thing. I may enjoy it in a humorous sense myself, but for the way God has called me to serve the body as a shepherd or a pastor, like a nursing mother, uh, those character traits are, you know, kind of in the balance and some of them even negative. Uh, there are other people who build walls other ways. Maybe you build walls just by being unavailable. Uh, maybe there are only six people that you talk to in the church of 200. Uh, brothers, you need to be able to look and see, are there ways, whether they're personality walls or schedule walls, what are the walls that you have built that are hindering you from being available to the people in your congregation? Uh, what can you do to break down those walls? What can you do to cultivate personal time with people? It's interesting when you read through Paul's letters to see that he writes to the Corinthians and to the Philippians, and the writer of the Hebrews does the same thing. One of many reasons I think Hebrews, maybe it was written by Paul, um, are the, the times he says, follow me, imitate me, insofar as I follow Christ. Or Hebrews 13, follow the examples of those who taught you. Our human example is presuming that people have seen it. That they've been around us to know what it means when Paul says, imitate me. This is where I think Robert Coleman's little book, Master Plan of Evangelism, is at some of its most helpful. Again, it's a good book for you to read. It's very short. Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. So with me, what that means for, for the way my schedule is, is structured, uh, that means I'm going to have lunches with people. Uh, that's some of my freest time to be able to see people during the week. Uh, but it may even be if I'm going to go to the grocery store. I mean, Charles Kim got to know me through Connie having cancer, making me the grocery store man in our marriage, when she had always been the grocery store person. But how many times, Charles, did you and I go to Wegmans together and, you know, just look through vast amounts of groceries to find these particular things? But those were great times. We got a lot of time to talk. Uh, so use errands like that uh, in order to be able to get to know others. Um, the way, very way I work on my sermon, I try to include other people with an application grid lunch, I call it. I make a grid of applications with the different points of my sermon in different categories of hearers, and then I try to fill it out with example applications, not all of which will appear in my sermon. Uh, but those applications, I get guys to come with me on a lunch and help me think through them. So I get their ideas as well. 
now, even the Sundays when I don't use any of those ideas actually in my sermon, I've had a great time with those guys. And we've been able to think about the word together. They've gotten to know each other. They've gotten to know that part of the word better. They've gotten to think about what it means to work on a sermon. There's just lots of little good stuff that's come out that may activate a kind of teaching gene in them. Or on Saturday night when I read my sermon manuscript to some members of the church. Men and women will come to my study. uh, You know, maybe five, maybe 15. uh, And I will read it out loud. I'm not preaching it. I'm just reading it. And I'll get feedback from them. Again, that's going to help them understand what a sermon is. That's going to help them care about me personally. That's going to help them understand that portion of God's word better. All of that stuff, they're going to see who else is there. They're going to get to know them as they hear them make comments. There's just a good atmosphere created by that uh, with that kind of personal time. Even uh, coming on a trip like this. So, so Ben Lacey is with me, one of the other pastors of our church. Well, he and I have had some good conversations together. Uh, because he's with me on this trip. A trip I could take alone. Instead, I always make sure and have somebody with me to sort of double use that time. Um, Now, there might be other ways that you want to work on that. You know, you're not all called to be extroverts. And if that would wear you out, if one of the best things about you doing something like this is the time you will have alone to recharge, well, that's fine. You use the emotional wallet that God has given you and you spend that. Uh, Don't pretend you have a different kind the Lord is sovereign he knows exactly the right kind of emotional wallet in that sense to give you but just use what you have well uh, number five this is number four personal time number five delegate delegate responsibilities to others again I've referred to it three times now turn to Exodus 18 I mean it is such a useful passage to think about in this topic Exodus chapter 18 Jethro's advice One verse to notice in particular, the, the whole passage is worth reading. But in, um, in, in chapter 18 of Exodus, verse 18, Jethro says to Moses, You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So brother, look at the very areas where you are feeling worn out, where you're feeling tired. And maybe you'll find some of those areas where you are feeling tired are the very areas that indicate opportunities for delegation. Maybe there are ways you could include others in the ministry at particular points. And the Lord in his kind providence is indicating that to you. There are a lot of components of delegating. Uh, One that people sometimes don't think about is the importance of losing votes. Uh, So, for example, I am an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I am one of currently 24 elders. We don't have a set number in our constitution. Um, And uh, what happens sometimes on votes is I I lose. And by when I say I lose, I mean a vote was like 17 to 6, and I was one of the six. Uh, Ben, can you ever think of an example of me losing a vote? Yes. Okay, just stand up and tell them about me losing a vote. As another elder. Have you and I ever voted differently at an elders meeting? Like what would we vote differently on? The Trinity? The divinity of Christ. (laughs) All right. What would we vote differently on? Well, this this is not... Any other examples? (laughs) Any other examples? I did. Can you think of any others less well-known examples? 
So on pastoral judgments, could be a large thing like suing the city, could be a small thing like, uh, like excommunicating. Jonathan, can you think of any examples from your years as an elder at CHBC? That's right. When, when uh, the NIV, when Zondervan and their dastardly deed uh, burned God's word and got rid of the 1984 NIV and forbade people to reprint it, you know, under penalty of like law. Uh, imagine doing that if you were a Christian. Uh, instead, they came out with a new gender neutral deal, um, 2011, and we were feeling like, oh, well, we can't do that anymore. So we've got to go to the RSV finally. Thank you, C.H. Dodd, called the ESV these days, but it's still C.H. Dodd's RSV, basically. Um, or the NAS or the CSB from the Southern Baptists. We had two years of meetings about this as elders, and I would never indicate my preference. Uh, I would listen, I would participate in the conversations, making points, and we had a secret ballot at the end to decide which one to go for. Because I didn't want people to know how I voted. And people still don't know how I voted on that. Because I think English speakers are all kinds of silly in the way they fight over translations. I mean, the way you fight over the NIV, the ESV, the CSB, and the NAS, it just shows me, frankly, you don't know very much. Uh, they're committee translations, they're all excellent, they all say the same thing. Uh, there are pros and cons with all of them, and you're playing into the hands of Rome. Rome's told us that we need experts, pointy-headed experts, to tell us what God's word means, that God has failed, that scripture is not perspicuous. Rome lies in that, and the way some Christian companies have promoted translations of one over another shows that they're making it sound like Rome is right, that we need experts to teach them. Brothers, you can use any of those major translations, you'll be absolutely fine. God's word is clear. And so, though I have my own preferences, and I'm right in my preferences... <laughs> I was making a point to the elders that, brothers, you can pick the translation, I'll preach out of it. It's, the, it's all good. I mean, it's God's word. Praise the Lord for his word. You know, it is perspicuous. And the slight variations in the translations between RSV, which is what the ESV really is, the NAS, you know, the NIV 2011, though I don't like the gender neutral stuff. It's an excellent translation otherwise. And the um, CSB, they're just all great work. Yeah. Right. No. I was very deliberate in that. Yep. Yep. Anyway, so my point in all that is if you make sure the eldership always votes like you do, you'll get a different kind of man serving you as an elder. You'll have a different kind of conversations on your eldership, and you will do stupid things. I have the kind of eldership that regularly votes me down. And I'm thankful for it. That's what I want. Because of that, I have a different kind of man serving on that eldership. A different kind of person who will give time to that. Because they realize that their voice matters. And that I will listen. And the other elders will listen. One of the vows we make when we become an elder at our church is to submit to our fellow elders in the Lord with God's help. And it's an important vow, and it's part of the humility that it takes to be in leadership, I think. And it's part of delegating, cultivating the respect of the congregation for other leaders is uh, an important part of your being able to raise up other leaders. 
The story I always tell at this point is Aaron Minikoff. He was a pastoral assistant at the time in our church. He was teaching the Wednesday night Bible study for the first time. Aaron is considerably shorter than I am. I was playing around with him, uh, like physically, before uh, Bible study. I was like shoving him or something or patting him on the head. And he like grabs me by both arms, takes me over there like kind of behind a half wall, says to me, stop it. He was not angry. He said, Mark, you can't do that. You're trying to get them to respect me. I know you respect me, but you need to convince them to respect me. And you're treating me like that won't help. The moment he said it, I knew he was right. You know, of course that's right. You know, Aaron and I have a great relationship. I'm playful. He, I think, is okay with it. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe I never asked. But, um, but he, he was analyzing the congregation, I think, exactly right. If you want to cultivate, if you want other men to be raised up in your congregation that the congregation respects, you have to be the chief leader of cultivating respect publicly for them. I think uh, one of the things you want to do is be regularly generous in giving young men opportunities to teach. Like those course seminars, or we have developed our Sunday evening prayer meeting. We have short 15-minute devotionals on a text of Scripture that I choose from the opposite testament of Scripture from the morning text. And so then, so if you have ever preached a Sunday evening sermon at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, please stand. So four of you. So tell about, just real briefly, tell about your experience. also creates a culture in the church of the church being used to listening to other people and enjoying hearing from other people so they're not just hearing from the main preacher Uh, I think you want to work to create those kinds of teaching opportunities that kind of testing through delegation whether it's in our case these core seminars or leading the morning service or reading scripture in the morning service or praying leading in prayer certainly preaching or preaching in the evening just discipling of others individually or small group leading or in evangelism or in writing articles or in working with the youth. All of that are examples of ministry being done uh, that becomes visible to others that you can rely on them to see. Uh, Brothers, you need to be willing to give up your pulpit. You're not building your kingdom. Uh, You want to empower others through opportunities to preach. So in our congregation these days, there are 52 Sundays in a year. I preach about 26 of those. Now, I'm almost always there. Uh, The next two Sundays, I'm preaching at two churches here in the L.A. area. This is probably the only time in my last 30 years that I've preached back-to-back in churches, local churches, other than Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I just, I don't normally do this, but it's a number of circumstances, so here I am, L.A. Uh, So I'm I'm with PJ this Sunday and Rocky the following Sunday. Looking forward to it. But it's, um, normally, I'm there at Capitol Hill, even if I'm not preaching. So the congregation is to see me sitting there listening to Bobby preach uh, or, or Ben preach. And then on Sunday evening, I'll be there leading the service. 
Uh, and that's, that's a good thing for them to see, I think, uh, as you empower others through opportunities to preach. It's also good to have your elders maybe read Trellis and Vine along with you. Uh, our elders, when it came out, read it and talked about it. It was very useful. The Trellis and the Vine, Carl Marshall and Tony Payne. Uh, a sixth thing, feedback. Uh, ben mentioned people coming along to the service review time. So at 9 o'clock on Sunday night in my study, uh, we go over the course seminars that were taught, the morning service, including the singing, the music leading, the service leading, the prayers, the scripture readings, and especially the sermon. And then we go over the evening service as well. Uh, I think we want to model uh, a number of things in that. I always say we're trying to model four things in that session. We want to model giving godly criticism. And we want to model giving godly encouragement, which is not flattery, and it's different than criticism. So model giving godly criticism, model giving godly encouragement, but also model receiving godly criticism, and model receiving godly encouragement. Again, all four of those are somewhat different skills. Some brothers are very good at giving godly encouragement. You know, but they're not that good at receiving godly criticism. You know, we, if, if you want to be a safe leader, you want to exercise authority well, reference now my T4G address back in April, good authority, then you want to regularly subject yourselves to that kind of criticism in front of others. And you want to criticize others in front of others. So they learn how to do that. Uh, my own personal practice is always I like to begin it's the opposite of the biblical practice. The biblical practice in Paul is you begin with encouragement and then you get into it. Uh, I'm more of a Galatians kind of man myself. Uh, I like the criticism up front. Uh, because once I've heard the criticism, and then I'm ready to believe you in the good things that you say. Other than that, I'm just tempted to think you're flattering me so you can say what you really want to say. You know. But however you work out to do it, work out a culture in which criticism can be given and received. Uh, so that would all be number six, feedback. Um, yeah, number seven, they need to have a good understanding of and practice of and use of authority. So you, you get uh, an indication of this with the whole issue of complementarianism. Do they seem nervous about this or is this clearly a good thing? Now, with complementarianism as an example, that can be a bit hidden because if you're of the older generation, you tend to think gender is a good thing. And if you've just come out of the you know, public school system and you're 25, you can be forgiven for being a bit shell-shocked and feeling apologetic about gender. Um, but you've basically, if somebody's going to be an elder in a Christian church, they need to come around to understanding the Bible's teaching on gender and not reluctantly going along with it, but celebrating God's goodness and his brilliance in coming up with this. And it's the same way with all, all matters of exercising authority. Uh, we need to understand that authority is good, and we need to be able to explain that. The verses that I use to speak on this at T4G, I'll just refer you to again now. 2 Samuel, if you turn there, these are worth your noting. 2 Samuel 23, the first four verses. 2 Samuel 23, the first four verses. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. So these are the last words of David. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. And here they come. These are the words. When one rules justly over men, 
ruling in the fear of God. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Brothers, there are other places you can go. Uh, Psalm 72, Proverbs 8, Isaiah 55, to see similar kind of encouragements. But this is an especially sweet example of just ruling benefits those underneath it. And we know this. Every kid wants to be on the team with a good coach, in the class with a good teacher. You want to go to the lectures by the good prof and be hired at a company with a good boss. We all know that authority well used blesses those under it. So you need a confidence in that, in anyone that you're calling to exercise authority as an elder in your church. Number eight, clarity. It's a very simple one. You want them to be able to be someone who can put things clearly. Who can see to the heart of a matter. Who can express it with words. Because the elder function is essentially a teaching function. Most Christians are not elders. Most men are not elders. That's fine. If the Lord had meant most of them to be, they would be. But he clearly didn't. But the ones who serve us as elders need to be able to teach with unusual clarity. They need to be able themselves to understand and to put into words, whether written or spoken. I don't believe it means people need to preach, be able to preach. It may be a quiet discipling one by one or a ministry of writing. Let's say that Jonathan were a wonderful writer but a terrible preacher. He's not, in fact, he's a good preacher. But if that were the case... I think that alone would qualify Jonathan to be an elder. If he's the kind of person that Joseph knows, if he's in the congregation and he's wondering about something, he knows Dr. Lehman seems to understand God's word well. He'll ask Dr. Lehman. He'll tell him. That's what it means to be apt to teach. Uh, part of that teaching gift is able an ability to be clear. And the last one I'll mention, number nine, humility. You want to encourage an open atmosphere that's pro-humility and against envy and fear of man, where you rejoice in the leadership of others rather than feel threatened by it, uh, where you can be careful in the way you build the congregation you're preaching, not to build too much around yourself. Stories of your wonderful time with your family that everybody's, you know, tunes into like the local soap opera or sitcom. You know, oh, how did Bobby do it at baseball this week? You know, be very careful about that. You get carnal people interested in that. Uh, you know, you want to be interested in Christ and in his word. And honestly, the other people who teach and preach your church, they can indulge more in that kind of personal illustration. I'm going to be a little bit more Lloyd-Jones and a little bit more like, be careful with that. And you just have to know yourself. I have a huge personality. Uh, I, I can fill a room easily and talk freely. And that has good things, but it has bad aspects too. So if I'm not very careful with that, I'll make it very hard for other men around me to preach well, because everybody will want me. But somehow I've succeeded at not being such a good preacher that people don't seem to be happy also to hear other people preach. Surprises me all the time. But nevertheless, it's the case. People are happy to hear other people preach in our church. When they come and they find Ben's preaching, they're not disappointed. They're happy to hear from Ben. I think you as a pastor want to encourage a situation like that. Uh, you want to be more tender-hearted and thick-skinned yourself. That's what 
some of what you want to do if you want to see your church prosper by seeing more leaders being raised up and if you want to see your church maybe moving from being a red dot church to a green dot church. Um, there is other stuff that I could say, but since I have an unusual richness of brothers around, uh, uh, any of the brothers from CHBC want to add anything uh, by exhortation, either you know, pro, con, additional that might be useful to the people seated here. Jason, can you think of anything? Yeah, Charles, anything? Um, Got to say it to them if you have anything. Yeah, there's also Stand up. Yeah, we, we have brothers who are feeling, uh, desiring to be elders. Uh, we allow them to sit in on, on a large portion of the elders meeting. Yeah, that's good. Ben, anything else? That's not true. That is not true. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I see it's, it's, a, it's a shame the way I get churches contacting me several a week looking for pastors. And I almost have never met a church which is not arrogant. Uh, every church thinks more highly of itself than it should. Every church thinks when they're looking for a pastor, they are the catch of all catches. They are going to give them 18.5 with no questions. Free and clear. And a place to live. You know, and so deals that would have been really good 100 years ago, they still think are good. And uh, they just think they are the catch. Boy, everybody wants to be the pastor of this church. And it is true, there are so many desperate characters that want to be pastors, you will get 200 resumes if you advertise for a job. And that may make you think you're special, but I promise, those 200 people are sending their resumes to every church in America, you know, and you're not that special. Uh, but what that means specifically is they again and again are wanting somebody with tons of experience. And, and yet they're not that careful in looking at the person godly. They don't look at their character in the same way. So I want to tell them, look, choose a very godly and gifted young man. Get them when they're a cub. Let them chew some things up around the house for a while. Learn some lessons on you. And you'll have a lion that loves you for life. You know, that's, that's the wise way to find a pastor when you're a church looking. Do you have anything else, Ben? Jonathan, anything? No, that's right. That's a good point. No, when I first got to Capitol Hill, I was doing 48 of the 52 a year. And that declined over time as the congregation grew and we had more elders, more able preachers around. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Thank you for that, Jonathan. Well, friends, I think that's, uh, that's good. I think we can go into a time of Q&A now uh, that uh, I'm happy to take questions on this or we can talk about what PJ talked about or I guess anything really that we've talked about today and last night.